Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Welcome back to Politico's EU Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the world of the EU and European politics, which is so much more interesting than it sounds. Please subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and make sure you leave a review as well. We want people to know how we're doing and reach as many of you as possible. On this week's show, journalist Francis Robinson talks us through the things Brexit has already wrecked, and that's before it's even happened. There was this great piece in Tatler, which is the kind of UK society bible, right? It's all about, you know, eligible dukes, what hat you should be wearing to Royal Ascot, best picnic foods for Glindbourne, that kind of thing. And that suddenly they were writing about Brexit because it's ruined dating. Victoria Espinel of BSA, the Software Alliance, sits down to talk about the politics and the awesome power of data. If you look back to the beginning of recorded history, to when human beings first started writing down the knowledge that they had, and you look at all of the data that was recorded up until this moment, 98% of it was created in the last two years. So that is an explosion of data far beyond exponential, and the impact that that's going to have on our society and our economy is really difficult to predict. Our Brussels Brains Trust, Lena Abarus and Alva Finn, talk Roadworks Rage and Simone Weil. And in our Dear Politico advice section, we hear from a listener who says she's experienced sexual harassment from MEPs and their aides. So let's get right into it with the things that Brexit has already ruined. Hey, Francis Robinson. Welcome to EU Confidential. Hi, Ryan. It's How are so you? good to have you here. Now, for the one or two people in the galaxy who don't know who you are, you used to live here in Brussels up until about two, two and a half years ago. You were a Wall Street Journal reporter, and now you do some writing for Politico. Exactly. I've been freelance for about two and a half years, um, completely loving it, based in London, doing lots of moderating work and getting lots of quality Eurostar time in as I come back and forth to Brussels. So you essentially have a ringside seat at Brexit from both ends of the candle. Yes, and it's been quite a revelation to see just how little the UK collectively understands about what the hell is going on. Well, I would have to say that having watched the EU debate in the UK for 14 years now, it's um, not quite a surprise to think that they aren't on top of the details so far. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Now... You just wrote an article for Politico uh, using a format that we love to pull out of the closet when times are getting tough, and it's our Dirty Dozen format, and you wrote about 12 things that are already ruined because of Brexit. 
What were your favourite items on the list? Exactly. Well, I had a lot of fun doing it because normally with the Dirty Dozen, it's, you know, 12 people who are going to ruin X, you know, it's quite an active role. Whereas this is more of a passive role that Brexit hasn't even happened yet. And yet it's ruining things left, right and centre. It's being disastrous for all kinds of things in the UK. So, you know, you have very serious things like the unity of the UK as a country, online debate, like there's just horrific things going on, kind of basically Mm. online hate crimes. Have you had any friends break up yet over Brexit? Well, this is also another aspect is that dating has been comprehensively ruined. So The Guardian had a great feature on, you know, marriage counsellors who are getting couples coming to them. I've certainly had arguments myself. You know, my best friend from high school, he voted leave. Don't know why he did that. So you're a Remain voter then, Francis. (laughs) What a surprise. (laughs) Total revelation indeed I hardly think that's a trade secret but also there was this great piece in Tatler which is the kind of UK society bible right it's all about you know eligible dukes what hat you should be wearing to Royal Ascot best picnic foods for Glindbourne that kind of thing and that suddenly they were writing about Brexit because it's ruined dating while we're on the topic of the royals What do you think the Queen really meant with that hat? Well, indeed, that's another thing that's in the piece is uh, royal neutrality. So obviously the the Queen has a a role which is very much kind of above politics, right? She meets the PM every week, but it's a very private meeting. She keeps herself to herself. And then, of course, she turned up wearing this hat, which didn't look like any of her other hats, did it? She really got it run up specially. It didn't look very abstract either. I mean, like you'd literally (laughs) have had to have sat down and thought, how can I represent the EU in a hat? And that is essentially what you would have come up with. Exactly. But whether that's because of a genuine pro-European sentiment or whether she was annoyed about missing part of the racing. I I think she was just annoyed at Theresa May personally. But I don't think it was an accident. (laughs) I think there was a message in there somewhere. Now, get down to some of the, the serious consequences of Brexit. I mean, is the UK in danger of... Uh, sidelining itself in a lot of discussions and issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think the UK is currently going for a a huge kind of self-inflicted wound to its own reputation. Um, Just kind of how it's seen internationally, like, you know, sort of a country that normally does what it says, but now at the moment we don't even know who's in charge. I thought it was very telling that in the kind of press conference after Barnier and Davis's first meeting that it was uh, Bruno of the Telegraph who was asking David Davis, you know, are you going to be around in six months? And They're meant to be the cheerleaders. Now, let's talk about Jeremy Corbyn here, because he really gets a free pass, doesn't he? So you have all these people saying, no, we don't want Brexit. We're so unhappy with Theresa May. And so all these people lining up behind him, you know, a lot of them don't want a Brexit to happen. And he's pretty much cheering all the way along for Brexit, like Theresa May. Yeah, it's the kind of youth cult, you know, the kind of, like, enthusiastic young people you see at Glastonbury with, like, uh, blue face paint and gold glitter scars stuck all over it. Also, love him, chant his name to the tune of Seven Nation Army. So it's like, well, which do you want? Because his support for for remaining was lukewarm at best. Indeed, indeed. Now, let's uh, switch it up. You um, headed off from Brussels right at a time when digital was moving centre stage. Now, two and a half years later, I kind of feel like we are still talking about a lot of the same issues, but now they've really moved up to the top of the political priority list. You still sort of have a finger in some tech pies. What's your sense of where the digital debate is in Europe these days? I think we're in this situation where a lot of the rules have changed. People still want to know what happens. People still want to know the outcome. At the same time, we as a generation are getting quite fed up with the internet. I've got this very important, very scientific research journal in front of me, which is Grazia magazine that I picked up on the Eurostar. And, uh... Peer-reviewed science journal for a <laughs> uh, very elite crowd. <laughs> so they've done a little survey of a thousand of their readers and what 
what I thought was fascinating is 66% of people said they feel nostalgic for a time before mobile phones. I can almost remember when I didn't have a mobile phone. <laughs> exactly. And then when you had a Nokia that you could have 20 texts on. Oh, and yes. Yeah, you didn't pick it up if you didn't feel like it. So we've gone from that to this constantly connected, always-on world full of apps and fripperies, you know. Honestly, I mean, I, I took Twitter um, and Facebook off my phone this morning because I was so sick of constantly pressing refresh and, and checking it out. But I have to say, even back in 2001, there was a, uh, it was like a financial eclipse, let's say. There was a moment in 2001 where I spent more on my mobile phone bill than I did on my monthly rent. Wow. And I quickly corrected. I realized I was about to, <laughs> to go off a cliff edge. So I'm, I'm telling you, David Davis, cliff edges are not good. So that's my <laughs> advice. And I, I pulled back from the edge. But, yeah, I do really feel like we are now in a, a world uh, that is not spinning out of control, but where we are we're we're kind of up to our necks in digital now, and, and we maybe don't know what we've signed ourselves up for. Yes, exactly. Are we in charge of the phones, or are the phones in charge of us? Well, we're going to talk a bit more about those issues in the next interview with Victoria Espinel, where I ask her, what are the opportunities of this billions and billions of connected devices and also are the algorithms and robots going to turn us into slaves we live in such a period of upheaval right now sure maybe it's not as obvious as that period 100 to 150 years ago when it was the telegraph the radio cars and other inventions that entered daily life and literally changed life beyond recognition but in the digital era, our lives are upended as well by internet, mobile networks, automation, artificial intelligence, and the globalization of supply chains. Not only those forces, but also their scale, reaching to all corners of the world. Software is the technical spine of those changes, and Victoria Espinel runs the biggest lobbying and advocacy group in the world for software, BSA. She's a former White House official under both Democratic and Republican administrations, and that background becomes more and more interesting. We're now in a period where the European Commission is going after large companies that are often American-owned or based. And the Pew Research Center shows us that the current U.S. administration is maybe the most controversial, or at least the least popular, ever. Victoria joins me to talk about the politics of data and what she's seeing at the front lines of the data revolution. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, let's start with something positive. We're more connected than ever. It means we've got more ways to solve all of the big challenges of our time. What's your favorite software advance or impact? And, and what's the biggest opportunity that we're missing out on right now? As you said, the world is changing very quickly. I think one of my, one of my favorite fun software and data statistics is that if you look back to the beginning of recorded history, to when human beings first started writing down the knowledge that they had, and you look at all of the data that was recorded up until this moment, 98% of it was created in the last two years. So that is an explosion of data far beyond exponential. And the impact that that's going to have on our society and our economy is really difficult to predict. I think it's actually one of the really interesting things about being alive today. I think for much of history, you could look at what was happening, you could look at the past, and you could probably extrapolate into the future 10, 15, 20 years with some reasonable amount of accuracy. And I don't know that that holds true today. I think we can, we can make predictions and we can certainly try to and should prepare for the future. But I think it's very difficult to predict today exactly what that future is going to look like. And I think that makes this a really fun and exciting and interesting time to be alive. In terms of you know, problems that data and software can solve, 
You mentioned health. That's one of the obvious areas uh, in the sense that already we're seeing a lot of advances. You think about, you know, what is it that you want if you were a patient? What is it that you would want if you were sick? You want your diagnosis to be as quick as it possibly can be. You want your diagnosis to be as accurate as it possibly can be. You want new methods of treatment. And that is happening now using AI and big data analytics in a variety of ways. So you know, I think health the individual in the middle of it in a way, doesn't it? Where before you were kind of at the mercy of an expert or a system. But when you can research that there is some groundbreaking advance happening in the other part of the world, and then you can turn up to your doctor and say, okay, I found this using this piece of software, then you're really in a different role in all of those dynamics. Yes, but I think, you know, AI can do that in a way that no human being can do. And one thing that AI can do is it can track patterns that can help doctors, even if we don't really understand why that is. So one of the examples that's near and dear to my heart, and probably because I had a child that was for a very brief short of time in a natal a NICU, a natal intensive care unit. And he was fine and is fine. But having gone through that experience, learning that doctors in Canada using AI started tracking the vital signs of babies that were in NICU units. And one of the things that they learned was that if their vital signs stabilized, it actually was a predictor that they were about to crash. Wow. And so it completely changed how they treated the babies because before that, understandably, if they saw the vital signs stabilize, they would assume that the baby was getting better and they would, of course, be monitoring the baby, but they would not have the baby on alert. Mm -hmm. Now, and they still don't know exactly why this is, but they now know that that is a predictor of a crash. So in fact, if you see a baby in the intensive care unit stabilize, the doctors know that that baby is actually at high risk for a crash and will be uh, monitoring them very carefully. And then they've seen deaths decline and treatment improve from that. That's a pattern that a human being is never going to be able to find. Mm -hmm. AI can do that. Now, this is maybe a bit of a side alley away from AI, but thinking about the Internet of Things, these billions of connected sensors and devices that now communicate with each other. You know, the sheer scale of that makes me wonder if we're on the verge of some tipping point about how we arrange our societies, how we allocate all of our resources. We we touched on that a little bit with the, the farming before. Do you get that sense as well, that, you know, things are really going to change in terms of we're not going to just be using a, a map app or something like that to get two minutes faster to our destination, but we're going to fundamentally reorganize you know, how we drive there and how quickly we can get there and things like that. Uh, yes, I think that's a fair point. I think IoT, AI, blockchain, quantum, all of these are technologies that are I believe, going to have a pretty fundamental shift in terms of how we live our lives. So some of them may also have an impact on how we organize ourselves as society, but I think all of them will have major impacts on our day-to-day life. And while going to the moon and the fact that you can use holographic research to help NASA figure out what it's like to drive on Mars, even if human beings haven't landed on Mars, is obviously very important. It's also really important to think about how we all go about living our lives every day and the impact that all of these technologies are going to have on that, I think mostly for the better. Now, what goes up must come down. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the vulnerabilities as well. And I guess my theory, not that I'm an expert or anything, but the more connected we are, we can be more vulnerable in some ways. And so I guess the first angle of that I wanted to think about is vulnerability to state intrusion. 
So, you know, whether that is Russian state actors hacking us or it's governments looking at all of our devices and the messages that we're sending to each other. Um, How do your members handle being the intermediary in a lot of those situations you know that where if the hacking comes via the things that your members do or the government comes and says we need the backdoor access to these devices absolutely so i firmly believe that technology is going to change our lives for the better in many ways but we also need to be thinking about potential downsides and privacy is one of those downsides. You know, I think our companies are very conscious of this. They are very much at the forefront of protecting privacy. I think it's very important that citizens feel they can trust their governments and trust the companies and trust the technology. So I think that's very important that we not only ensure that privacy they is protected. They almost trust you more than the governments now, actually. You know, people are loyal to those big-name companies much more than a politician in some ways. But, but I think part of that is the need to be transparent as well. Mm-hmm. And you raised law enforcement access, which is a great example. And it's something that we spend a lot of time working on because the situation right now is very confused. The law in the United States on when the government and how the government can access your data is unclear. The law in Europe on how government can access your data is unclear. If you look around the world, the unclear laws that we have, the unclear and out-of-date laws are also inconsistent with each other. So we have a situation where our legal framework is both unclear and globally inconsistent at the same time. That is a bad situation. It is bad for businesses because it is confusing. It is bad for law enforcement because they themselves don't have clear rules around what it is that they can access. And we obviously want law enforcement to be able to do their job and do their job really well. It's terrible for citizens because the global situation means they don't know exactly when and how their data can be accessed. So this is a big problem. It is clearly a downside of the positive fact that we live in a global interconnected world. And one of the things that we are working very hard on is to try to see if we can both clarify the laws around the world and try to make them more consistent. Now, another type of vulnerability comes from the machines themselves. And I used to think this was a bit of a conspiracy theory when I first heard it. And now I've seen more and more thinkers treat it as a real possibility. Do you ever worry that at some point we're going to get to some scenario where we're actually slaves to the algorithms or the robots? And and what sort of discussion can you even have in advance of that about the ethics and the limits of all of this stuff? So I don't. I have too much confidence in the human race to believe that that will be the case. So I truly don't. And I think it's not that AI can do more than human beings, but it can do things that are different than human beings can do. I think the ethics conversation is a very important one. And the good news is it's one that is already happening now. And a lot of it comes down to how do you design AI from the beginning? And how do you design the decision-making processes around AI? And those are discussions that are happening right now. I think the other part of the discussion, which I've heard less about, but I want to hear more about, is how we can actually use AI to drive better ethical outcomes. So one that I'm particularly interested in is employment discrimination. It is clear that AI improperly used could actually exacerbate discrimination and bias, but it is also very clear that AI could be very helpful in eliminating employment discrimination and bias. And so I think it's very important for the industry to be focusing on that and also for governments to be thinking about those outcomes and trying to drive the technology to promote the types of societal ethical outcomes that we want. Maybe let's get back to the EU now. We had a recent decision where the European Commission has fined Google more than €2 billion 
for what it says is an antitrust violation. And I don't want to ask you to comment on that specific case because I think we won't really even know the full details for a few weeks yet when that actual full decision is published. But to you as someone who works in this field and with many tech companies, what does it signal to you that regulators are more and more concerned about the footprint of digital companies and finding more and more ways to investigate it and put them in the spotlight? You know, I think for Europe as well as the United States. But I think for Europe, the data economy and innovation is the future of Europe. And I think Europe, and I'm using that you know, term as a homogenous term when it actually obviously is not the case, but I think this is the moment for Europe to decide if they are going to embrace innovation that comes from anywhere in the world or if they are going to embrace innovation that only comes from inside of Europe. And I believe it would be a mistake for Europe at this moment to turn inward and only be or primarily be focused on promoting innovation that comes from inside of Europe. I know that is an active discussion inside a variety of member states, including and ministries inside the European Commission. But I am confident that in the end, Europe and the countries of Europe, which have generally, I think, arced towards openness and globalization, will make that decision here as well. And I think that is why, again, this is the moment for Europe to make that decision about how it feels about technology in general, not technology from the United States or technology from Europe or technology from any other country, but is Europe interested in embracing that future and coming up with legal structures and frameworks that will promote technology regardless of its origin. Another example of where that technology is built into legal documents, for example, is trade deals. The next one that is on the table that could be landing anytime soon is an EU-Japan trade deal, and that might be the biggest trade deal ever, depending on what is included in there. And I think Japan has been keen to include data and ensuring a free flow of data into the deal. The EU may be less so. What's your role been in that debate? Because I know you have offices all around the world, and obviously this technology is global. So we have been actively encouraging both Japan and the European Commission to include digital trade in their free trade agreements, and as part of that, to include provisions on data and data economy and the ability for data to move back and forth across borders under most circumstances. We think it would be an enormous missed opportunity if Japan and the EU conclude an FTA that does not contain those provisions. I think Japan negotiated the TPP with the United States, and in those negotiations was a strong supporter of digital trade. I think Japan, again, sees its future as a future of innovation and technology and wants to promote that not just within Japan but around the world. But I think it would be an enormous missed opportunity for two economies that are as innovative, as large, and as forward-looking as Japan and the EU to conclude a trade agreement that does not include digital trade to conclude a trade agreement that is more a trade agreement of yesterday than the future. I think it would be an enormous shame. It would almost be like the NAFTA of 2017, <laughs> <laughs> which, which brings us to NAFTA. So, nice segue. <laughs> so I know you've been vocal as well because Mr. Trump has been very vocal about the need to renegotiate NAFTA. And you were making a point recently that the perfect way to do that would be to make it fit for the digital era. And let's remember NAFTA, that was a deal that was sealed when the internet was basically a bunch of bulletin boards in the early 90s. So, of course, they couldn't put something into the deal that didn't exist. But, okay, Mr. Trump is taking us down the renegotiation road. What do you think 
specifically the three governments in NAFTA should do to, to get it ready for this digital age? So I think they absolutely should use NAFTA as an opportunity to set a precedent on digital trade. As you said, NAFTA was concluded before there was a commercial internet, before the data revolution had even started, before cloud computing was a commercial reality. So it's only been a couple of decades, but the world has changed immensely since then. And through no faults of their own, the negotiators did not include provisions on digital trade because digital trade didn't exist. In the last 23 years, digital trade has gone from not existing to being a core element of the U.S. economy, certainly, but the global economy as a whole. And one thing I should say is, you know, people talk about digital economy and digital trade. I've even been using those terms. I actually feel fairly strongly that it doesn't even make sense to talk about it as a sector because it's, it's a layer of every now. part of the economy at this point. So I think uh, for Canada and Mexico and the United States, this is a great opportunity and one that they should seize wholeheartedly and with both hands to set a precedent for the rest of the world. I think it would be a great opportunity to set really strong rules on digital trade, on data flows, on how governments are using technology, on regulatory issues, uh, on issues like encryption. Use NAFTA as an opportunity to set that baseline for the rest of the world. Now, maybe one last question that wraps up a few of those thoughts, which is that in a sense, governments and regulators are always going to be behind the curve because this is a world that changes so much and you can't regulate for a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, is there or anything? you should avoid trying yes, to do that. Exactly. Yeah, sometimes you just stay out of the way. That's the best advice you can give to any politician. But is there any advice you'd have for leaders, for administrations around the world of how to maybe future-proof or keep rolling updates going for their approach to regulation and trade deals and enforcement issues so that they're not really just always dealing with yesterday's problem? So I love that question. And, it, and it's difficult, right, for any policymaker because you want to look at the future at the same time you have often real concrete problems of today that need to be solved. And so how do you do both of those things at the same time is a real challenge. One of the things that I've been thinking about is whether or not government could adopt more of a technology mindset. And what I mean by that is whether or not government could be more agile and how government goes about making its decisions in terms of what to focus on and what its policies, positions should be. If you look at agile software development and you extrapolate that to government decision making, which is a very, very, very different thing. But I do think there are some commonalities. And so I think, you know, governments who tried to be more agile, and by that I mean governments who try to increase the participation so they're hearing from as many different voices as mm -hmm. possible, would be very helpful. I think having governments be self-critical of their policies and self-learning of their policies. Yeah. So have governments actually go out and try to test the outcomes of the policies they put in place and then be confident well, it's a enough. It's machine learning. Exactly. You know, politicians know how to be machines when they want to be. Maybe they need to well, apply it, that to learning. It's a type of self-learning, <laughs> trying to be more participatory, trying to trying to truly learn from policy outcomes and then make hard decisions about changes in policy when they need to be made and trying to be as outcome-based as possible would be very helpful. So for governments to be thinking about the goals that they're trying to achieve and less sort of sets of regulations that they're then going to check compliance against. Very good. There you go, dear leaders. You've got some homework. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this interview with Victoria Espinel from BSA. Time now to welcome back our Brussels Brains Trust, starting off with the EU WTF section. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. G'day, Ryan. Well, 
We're going to go local today. It's very, very frustrating this morning trying to get into the Politico offices because we've got a real Belgian solution on our hands. So for people who've never been to Brussels, who haven't worked at the EU before, Belgium is famous for essentially being permanently under construction. Belgians hate to hear it, but it's the truth, and we're going to dissect it today. And the latest thing that's prompted this level of frustration and amongst all of us around the table here is that they've shut the main artery coming into the city, which passes through the EU quarter. They've cut it from four lanes down to two. They've shut down several of the tunnels of the inner ring road. And all of this is supposedly going to get sorted out during our summer breaks. But guess what? Belgian construction shuts down entirely between July 15 and August 15. So there's precisely zero chance of this thing going to schedule. Ladies, how is this affecting your morning? Well, to get here was very stressful. It was like a video game. Every single time <laughs> I went down a street, I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to divert. It's, it's like this everywhere. But honestly, I think that I've seen, since I've moved here five years ago, the same streets under construction. Like, what is going on? Why aren't they doing the thing right in the first place? Why do they need to dr- dig up the street again? Meanwhile, bunches of streets just are never fixed at all. I mean, try cycling around Place Jordan, which is where the famous fries stand is that Angela Merkel and other leaders go to. I mean, that is, that's literally like some kind of jungle gym commando course <laughs> down there. And you'd think, wow, this is a, a main square with a fancy Sofitel on it. And Angela Merkel comes here every month. And can we put a new paver down? No, we yeah. can't. No, no, no. I think they just need to find the bikers. This morning coming here, I didn't know where, how I will be hit by the bicycle or by the pedestrian or by trying to save myself. I, didn't, I, I was walking like, you know, like a, a monster. I didn't know. <laughs> I, I was really afraid to, how am I going to now get to Now, that's not really incredible. I mean, Lena really? is frankly the most put-together person yeah, on the planet. The true, idea that you're test. a monster, Lena. Well, you're going to have to do more to convince us of that. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, and then I was so polite, I stopped. So I let a lady to pass because it was so narrow. And she was shouting at me in Italian. Wow. Federica Mogherini, you should be more polite. (laughs) So just like, you know, just say thank you. I wanted to to be polite, but we made it. We're here. Good morning, everyone. And before we started recording, Lena, you were telling us how there's literally now an open sewer out the front of your office. So I leave the office. Everything is fine. Everything in place. This morning I arrive. I can't get to my office because they're doing something with the sewage, it seems. And unfortunately, they just forgot this to put this little bridge so we just can <laughs> access the door of our office. So you are wondering. Uh, you go up and down uh, from one side to the other of the street. You're looking basically at your office, but you say, hello, you can't get there. <laughs> and everybody is calling on the phone. Oh, okay, so how are we going to get there? Now, the bit I forgot to oh, mention yeah, yeah. before. Thank you, Brussels. <laughs> is that there's also no warning of this. Like, if this was a normal city, there would be some big signage telling you that there's going to be three months of construction works and they're going to start on this date and they're going to end on this date. And we literally just got out of the tube yesterday and it was just a massive construction. And they don't tell you for how long. Well, we've been told that it will end on the 31st of August, but there is zero chance that that is going to happen. I I will eat this laptop if those (laughs) things are taken away on the 31st of August. We're going to have a bucket of champagne if this happens on the 31st. 31st of August. Okay, that's a deal. You're going to hear champagne corks for the first episode back after Popping the break, off. dear listeners. Mm-hmm. 
This week we don't have an EU thumbs up, but we decided we'd give a personal thumbs up, and collectively we want to make sure that people remember and celebrate the life of Simone Weil, who was the campaigner from France who survived Auschwitz, who was the first elected president of the European Parliament, and who introduced the possibility for women to have abortions in France in the 1970s. So she's a huge figure. She's kind of passed away a little bit in the shadow of Helmut Kohl, and it's important that we don't forget the contributions that she made. Agreed. I think she was a very cool lady. She might have been a little bit overshadowed, but had a very, is a very important figure in the history of the EU, but also in, uh, for women's rights. That's how I actually knew her. So just to point out, yeah, that in another week, she would have been uh, gotten many more headlines, and we just wanted to kind of make sure that people remember her uh, and celebrate her in death. Well, maybe it's never too late. Maybe the Commission could do something to commemorate her legacy, uh, whether through a fund, through an NGO, through uh, a big ceremony where they talk about all the, the contributions she has done to, to women. Or if they're going to build that big yep. hemicycle, to say the exact same yeah. thing. maybe they could call it the yeah, Simone Weil hemicycle. Yeah. Let's hope Build so. it properly, though. So now it's time for us to turn to the Dear Politico section, our advice section, where we take in the concerns or problems that you, the listeners, have written to us, and we try to address them. This week's one is a little bit distressing. It comes from a female lobbyist in Brussels. So she works for a lobbying agency here in Brussels, and many of the events that she organises are in Parliament. And the system that is now in place for security in Parliament means there has to be an MEP sponsor for each event. And uh, Francine, let's call her, writes... Quote, for the past three years, I have encountered all sorts of harassment from the MEPs, male assistants and policy advisors. They make my life hell. She goes on to describe that drinks are mandatory to make the event happen, sometimes even in MEP homes. And then she says, quote, most of them are married or have girlfriends, but they don't care. Francine says that last month her boss promoted her because she is doing such a great job. But then she says, quote, I want this to stop, but this is my job. And no one knows how I am getting my way in these events. Shall I confess to my boss or shall I leave my job? It pays me so well, my boyfriend is unemployed. What do you reckon? Oh, that last line, heartbreaking. I think, yeah, it's, well, first of all, I completely just think this is awful behaviour. You sound very unhappy. It's not good for your mental health. I work for a mental health organisation. We do a lot about mental health in the workplace. And harassment is one of these things that, you know, slowly grinds away at you. It seems like you've already kind of come to a conclusion that you need to tell your boss what's been happening. You use the word confession, and I don't know how much you've kind of given in to some of these advances. Maybe you'll need to be a little bit careful about what you tell him about that. But also simply, you can start refusing those those advances. Don't go to anybody's apartment if they ask you to go, just say no. I mean, I organise events with MEPs and this is never kind of pro pro quo thing they're going to do the event anyway it's the MEP who decides uh, whether or not they're going to do it so I think yeah you need to kind of be a little bit more firm yeah I think there's there's an element of going out for drinks etc with people but rebuff advances when they come at you and if if you think that it's affected the business or it's affecting an event then tell your boss that you think that the reason why things are going well is because you turned down someone's advances. Lena? I'm terribly sorry you're going through this um, experience, but look, we are the resource of our own experiences. You have a choice to make. You can refuse. You can put these people down. What would be the worst case scenario? You would lose one client, 
I'm not sure that the client would even disappear. I think you would have a difficulty with an event yeah. that the client wanted to happen. Exactly. But not all events have to happen in the parliament. Yeah. I mean, I personally would be probably more willing to go to an event at a nice venue near the parliament than to go through the hassle of getting physically into the parliament. But, Ryan, so many clients, and uh, I work in this sector, part of the mandate for the agency is to do an event in the, in the parliament with an MEP. So... There's no way that it is impossible to change the situation. Don't confess to your boss. Don't go and now start a whole new story. Already you are pressured by external circumstances. Look for another job. If you are good in events organization and events management, you are talented. So go out and meet headhunters and try to find a more decent place where you don't need to work to do events in the parliament. Um, have you taken any precautions to avoid this happening? Because it does sound like the parliament is a bit of a hot spot for harassment. Certainly. First of all, we never go one person to the parliament, whether you're male or female. We go two. And especially the females, they have to be accompanied by one of our male colleagues. Well, that means you were a bit worried that it would happen if you put that in place. That is one thing. And the second thing, I always believe in team. If one is sick, the other one is able to mm. continue the business and know what's happening with the project. Okay. Well, thanks for that advice, Francine. We hope that was useful to you. Listeners, if you have another problem that you want addressed in the Dear Politico section, please send us an email to playbook at politico.eu. That's playbook at politico.eu, and we'll obviously treat the details and your name in confidence. Well, thanks as always to Lena and to Alva and to all our guests on this week's show. Don't forget, podcasts are a team effort. This podcast couldn't have happened without the production support of Andrew Gray, Cynthia Croat and Antonio Fernandez. That wraps up another EU Confidential. Please help us spread the word about the podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Write a review as well. Share it on social media or tell your friends and colleagues. That's how we will build up a bigger podcast community and make this podcast better and better. Send your ideas, your feedback, your dilemmas to playbook at politico.eu. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another EU Confidential. 